Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. The core thing in this book is just that if you are lonely, you are not alone. And that actually people who feel lonely are in the majority that the average American hasn't made a new friend in five years. 75% of people are not satisfied with their friendships. The average American has one friend. So if you're feeling lonely and you're listening to this, you're not alone. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 62, where we can't wear white pants anymore. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at j-o-n at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Jillian Richardson about her book, Unlonely Planet. Jillian is committed to creating connection and community by organizing places where people feel seen, heard, and valued. As a professional community builder, public speaker, and writer, Jillian is most known for being the founder of The Joy List, a weekly newsletter with a mission of reducing loneliness in New York City and eventually the world. She's been sending it out every Monday morning for over two years, helping people build connection to both place and each other. In addition to her successful career in freelance writing and event design, Jillian has just released her first book titled Unlonely Planet. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm so excited to be here with you today in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm joined by the lovely Jillian Richardson. Jillian, say hello. 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 Um, I'm here to talk about her book, Unlonely Planet, How Healthy Congregations Can Change the World. So very small potatoes, no steaks <laughs> kind of book. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, this book was amazing. And I, you know, I read a lot of books, I will say. And uh, this one I read all the way through very carefully because I was like, wow, each, each chapter is useful. And I especially liked how you had the takeaways and questions at the end. Um, but first off, tell, tell everyone about the book. What, it, what is Unlonely Planet? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so Unlonely Planet is a book about how to create spaces of belonging outside of organized religion. Because right now, the number one religion in America is none. Mm -hmm. And 50 years ago, that was not the case. And organized religion was a way for people to, even if it didn't necessarily serve all of their needs, it was a place to come together, to have a way to support each other, to be in community on a consistent basis. And now that we don't have that, how do we kind of create that for ourselves in a patchwork way? How mm. do we have those needs met in a time where our relationship to community is shifting and changing? So it's broken down into seven ways that you can create that for yourself. That's right. Yes. Excellent. And I think that's a great point. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the key you know, why, why, why should we care about this? Is that our society is changing mm -hmm. um, in terms of religion and religiosity maybe. And Ooh, wait, what do you mean by religiosity different than religion? Religiosity, I would say, is the how, how much of a connection to religion people would have. Yeah? Interesting. I've never heard that word before, and I like it. I think that's correct. I'm not 100%. We'll look it up later. <laughs> we'll believe it. But I think that's right. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So what's, it's like there's a, there's a divergence in the road. Like one part of society is changing mm -hmm. in, that, in that you just spoke about, but the institutions are not changing or, yes. or there, haven't been, there hasn't been that growth to mm -hmm. support that change in a, in a useful way. Yeah. So I think what you've laid out in this book is 
the steps, the path to take in order to really facilitate, you know, people's happiness. Yeah. Basically in our society, which is so important. So, okay, quickly before we get into how exactly to do that, we're going to, mm-hmm. I, I really love to just delve into the creative process just a bit. Yeah. And especially knowing that you, um, you do multiple things. Mm-hmm. So in addition to this book, you have The Joy List. Do you want to yes. tell us what The Joy List is all about? I would love to. So The Joy List is a weekly newsletter of events that New Yorkers can go to by themselves and leave with a new friend. And our mission is to make New York City and eventually the world a less lonely place. So the, what makes the newsletter different is that I include events with facilitated connection because there's so many event newsletters out there that have art galleries and shows and restaurants and things where it's very easy to go and receive something and then leave without really having a meaningful interaction with somebody else, Mm -hmm. especially if you have social anxiety. Like I do, a lot of people do. And what I do is share with people, hey, here's a space where you can go and someone will be there to help you have a deeper connection with someone. Yeah. You won't be left alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a lot of what the book is about to a great extent. And so for those of you that are not in New York, you know, the book talks about this, the the ways that that people can find those types of things Mm -hmm. even outside of um, New York City. Yes. And some of these, some of the things you talk about in the book are nationwide or even international Mm -hmm. in scope. Yes. And... I will be bringing the joy list to other cities. Ooh, stay so tuned. Stay tuned for that. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but quickly, so you're you're doing lots of writing. Yes. You're freelancing. You're, mm-hmm. You've got you've got all these projects. So at some point, you were like, "Wait, I want to write a book. I want yep. I want to add to my <laughs> busyness level. <laughs> I, I want to add to my workload." Stress myself out even more. Yeah. So what what was the switch that flipped that caused you to make that decision? Yeah. So. As I'm running the joy list, there kind of came this point where it was like the universe was telling me that addressing loneliness is a thing that I just need to make my life's work because I'm sending the newsletter out, I'm at parties and people ask me what I do and I stopped saying I'm a writer and I started saying I run a project that addresses loneliness in New York City. And this magical thing kept happening where people would just open up to me. Hmm. They would tell me about their own experience of loneliness or their concerns for someone in their life that's lonely. And it was like this really interesting gateway into vulnerability with this person that I couldn't have unlocked otherwise, I think, at least as quickly. Uh, And just things like this kept happening over and over again. I was kind of like, all right, I get it. Like, (laughs) this is an important thing. I need to focus on this. But I didn't really know how. Uh, And then I was at a conference called Next Gen Summit, which is Mm -hmm. a conference for young entrepreneurs. And this guy named Eric Koster gave a talk about for people who are young and they want to kind of get ahead in their career, but they don't have a traditional career path. How do they do it? What's a way to tell the world that you're an expert in something if you work for yourself? Mm. And his pitch, very smartly, was to write a book. And so he runs a book writing program and hearing him say this, I kind of had this aha moment of, well, wait, I'm already a professional writer. I'm writing for other people. I'm getting all of these experiences of being in these community building events, creating my own events, going to all these retreats. What if I wrote about that? Mm -hmm. And I just got so excited And at first, I didn't totally trust him because I was like, "Mm, this is like a book writing program. How good can this actually Uh be? So wait, Uh, so you actually signed up for the program? I did. Okay. After I talked to a few people who'd done it uh, and heard about what had happened, uh, there's this one woman, Haley Hoffman-Smith, who she wrote a book through the program, and she wrote about why only 1% of venture capital funding goes towards women. Mm. And after her book came out, she had the opportunity to start her own venture capital fund. Whoa. And I was like... And she was, I think, 22 at the time. And so, and I kept hearing all these stories from people of like, oh, yeah, I wrote a book. And then this ama- these amazing things happened. So It's interesting. It offers some, some sort of legitimacy 
in a society in which everything happens in 30 seconds and mm -hmm. people are reading top 10 lists and watching clips on Instagram or what or whatever like the fact that you sat down to write a book yes. do some research mm -hmm. think about things yeah that that clearly sets you apart yeah and also how he positioned it or Eric positioned it was as a way to kind of test if a career is something that you want to spend a long time pursuing mm. And to me, he said, who is the type of person that you want to spend your life talking to? Test out talking to those people for this book and see how it feels. Right. And so I was like, all right, well, really, it seems like the kind of person I want to talk to is professional community builders, because that's just who I always seem to get along with. It's what I nerd out about. Mm -hmm. And this writing this book very much confirmed for me that these are the people I want to be around for the rest of my life. Because... Oh. Every interview, I won't say every interview, most of the interviews I left feeling kind of high. Yeah. Just like so excited, so connected to the other person, so in my purpose. And I was just like, wow, this is really validated what I want to mm -hmm. do with my life. That's so exciting. What yeah. a wonderful feeling to have mm -hmm. after talking to, to not just someone, but someone after someone after someone. So yep, that's really great that that worked out for you so well. I'm glad. So, uh, so did you write the book within this program? So you were kind of incubating it within the, mm -hmm. the confines of the program. Yes. So was it extremely structured? Was it kind of super flexible, somewhere in the middle? How did you actually go about putting everything together? It's a blend. The, I would say the beginning portion of it was the least structured, where they essentially encouraged us to create a blend of our own personal stories and interview people and pull out stories from the interviews. So for example, I would interview someone and I would make sure to get at least three personal stories from them. So, which it sounds easy, but when people are really used to talking about the same things, you have to be really specific and be like, Hey, can you tell me a story about yeah. this thing or that thing? Um, and then I will not be able to list them, but he gave us a list of the seven different story types. Yeah, right. And uh -huh. then I'd say, okay, pull out the stories from this interview, characterize which story type is it, and then rewrite it according to the arc of that story type. Mm. So that even if you're not a professional writer like me, you can make sure that the story flows well and makes sense and that if someone's reading it, it reads well. Wow. That sounds like a good... Uh Good plan to me. Right? I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. So it's starting without an idea of like, oh, this is what this book is going to be. It's just talking to people and seeing what happens. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, it, it's very freeing because you had an overall sense. You had mm -hmm. like these people talking to you and opening up to you. And, and so you had a sense of kind of the, the broad painting that you wanted to paint but the specific brush strokes were sort of filled in by the people you spoke with mm -hmm. oh that's interesting so was there anything that was particularly difficult about this process oh, oh my god um i would say the biggest difficulty was just believing that i should write a book in the uh, first place okay. like oh. imposter syndrome kind totally of? Mm -hmm. uh thinking if i write something why would anyone read what i have to say there's already books out there about community building. Why is what I have, have to say will, will be any different? Uh, people who have way more experience than me have written books on this, all that stuff. And what was really helpful was having some conversations with people where they said, all right, look at all the books about community building that you have. What's kind of the profile of the author? And most of the books were written by men. And most of the books were written by white men. Specifically, like, in their 50s, 60s now, uh, at least the classic books like Loneliness, Community, The Art of Community, those books all written by men. Uh, and they said, have you found a book about community that's written by a woman in her 20s? And I was like, no. And they were like, okay, well, then your book is going to reach a different type of person yeah. naturally just because of who you are. Yeah. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So you had that, you, you, you found that, and you were able to like hopefully have that in, back, in the back of your mind yeah. as, you, as you worked. Oh. Yeah. And I would say the other difficulty was just figuring out what the hook of the book is because I, it's not really helpful to write a book that just says like, hey, community is good uh, 
And even saying, hey, community is good. Here's some ways to build community. There has to be like a new idea that I specifically am thinking about. And there was a day where I could not figure out how to structure the book. I was like, what? What's my unique angle on this? I don't even know. Uh, He had me structure out a PowerPoint presentation. Like I was hired to give it like a day long workshop at Google and was teaching all the things from my book. Mm -hmm. And a conversation with my friend Casey Rosengren made me realize that I'm, I am comparing community to religion a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, it's kind of like you're talking about different types of congregations. And that's what finally got me to realize like the, the difference that I'm talking about is congregation. That's a differentiating factor of that. Mm -hmm. I'm arguing that a congregation can be a religious group, but it can also just be a group of people who are deeply committed to each other. Like you, you are allowed to self identify your people as a congregation. Yeah. Mm. Because to me, at least just friends, it's not a strong enough word. I feel like when you hear like, Oh, they're a congregation, there's this weight to it. There's this, they're coming together with shared values they're helping each other. If someone joins a congregation, even if they just joined a week ago, they're going to have support if they want it and if they need it. And that's really beautiful. And so for people who aren't religious, how do you still have that? And I think that's why a lot of us are really struggling with loneliness is there isn't one place where you go and just drop in and you're like, great, these are my people and I feel at home and I know what's going to happen and I'm connected. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah, it's not just like there's a religion and then anti-religion, mm-hmm. you know, group where you can just go to them instead. Yeah. Um, so the very beginning of the book, you talk about your arrival to New York City mm-hmm. and how you went to tons of events and felt very busy, but you didn't feel connected. Yeah. So maybe just take us back in time to those days mm-hmm. and talk about what it was like trying to establish connections in New York and why making yourself busy wasn't leading towards that. Yeah. Well, so my first night in New York City, as I talk about in the book, I was really excited to go out. I was like, oh my God, it's my first night as a real adult living in New York City. Let's do it. And I knew one person in the city Mm -hmm. and he never responded to my messages, even though we had plans. And it was just this crushing feeling and this realization of like, oh shit, I don't, know people here I just moved to this giant city what do I do and so I feel like unconsciously I made this resolution with myself that this feeling is not going to happen to me again I'm going to fill my time I'm going to meet people but I didn't do it very consciously I just filled my schedule with stuff Mm -hmm. but not even with a consistent group of people the most consistency I had was with the improv community in New York City And as much as I love comedy and I love improv, it's not necessarily known for having deep, vulnerable conversations with people. Yeah. It's like joking and banter. Improv is so interesting. We can diverge quickly because I did improv for a a long while. Mm -hmm. Um, Me too. In in D.C., Mm -hmm. I taught improv and I performed and stuff. Yeah, with the Washington (sighs) Improv Theater. We're, We're connected in that way. Yeah. And I actually, when I moved to New York in 2014 and stopped, you know, it's like I moved to like one Why? of the biggest improv places in the world and stopped doing it mm-hmm. because I felt kind of like you were saying where with with improv, you, in order to get good at it, you need to do it a lot. You need to spend a lot of time in the community. Mm-hmm. You need to. So I was, you know, teaching one night, performing, rehearsing, doing sketch with a different group, mm-hmm. seeing people's shows. Yeah. So like four or five nights a week is just filled with that. Mm hmm. But I sort of realized, well, wait, like, what? who are these people? Yeah. You know, to some totally. degree. And they're super fun to be around. Like, it's like it's like growing up with your childhood friends again in mm-hmm. a way. So it's very addicting because you don't really have that in a lot of ways in, yeah. in other places. But like you said, I realized I didn't know them very well. Mm-hmm. And I think some people, there. I think some of the improv people are people that are, are they're never going to open up. They, yeah. they don't want to deal with that. They're mm-hmm. doing this to get away from everything yep. else. And that's fine, but you're never going to learn about them. Mm-hmm. And maybe the people that you could connect with and find with, you're going to have to pick off one by one because mm-hmm. you're kind of in a big group all the time. Yep. And you're, 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 you go to a bar after a show with 20 people and, 
everyone has a couple drinks and is then just chatting random chat. And so I think it, it goes back to what you were saying also about the lack of a facilitated conversation. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was sort of, it was almost like a leaderless congregation. Yeah. And, and so I think that for with me, Del Close is with the Del God. Close, right. With this one, you know, figure in the high tower. So, yeah, so I sort of abandoned it mm-hmm. um, and, and decided to try and focus my energies elsewhere after I moved to New York and find other congregations, I guess, mm. before I knew that word. I feel connected to you hearing you say that. I guess there's certain activities where if it's the only thing that you do, there it's you have to be the person to be the one to open up and create these spaces for vulnerable connection. And if people don't want to do it and that's your only community, you're stuck. Well, and I think it's pretty similar to what you were talking about in the book where you described how people were coming up to you that were stay-at-home moms or dads Mm -hmm. and having trouble finding community. Yeah. They were isolated and Mm -hmm. lonely, and you talk a lot about loneliness in the Mm -hmm. book. And so I think this was improv was a case of sort of loneliness with people, weirdly enough. So I I think you can kind of have it either way, and Mm -hmm. you can find yourself, you know, in a strange in a strange lonely place either way yeah it's difficult and it's like we're just not taught how to be in connection with other people and i know for a lot of people myself included true connection wasn't modeled for me growing up so i didn't even know that it was possible until in my 20s i met adults who actually had that in their lives Mm -hmm. and it blew my mind it's like wait who were these people who were i'm learning details about their life and they're emotional and they're silly and they're dancing and they're not self-conscious like what is happening right now yeah it's a big change Mm -hmm. and i think so i'm i'm gonna look at this word in particular that i wanted to say which is frenemacy Mm -hmm. which is like uh, such a fun word uh, I think I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Is is it's you know okay to be frentiment mm-hmm. with people and it's okay to to find that in other people. So talk yes. talk a bit about frentimacy and and kind of what you were just saying there. Yeah. So frentimacy it's a term that I'm borrowing from this woman Shasta Nelson who speaks and writes books about intimacy and friendship a lot. Uh, And it's just a topic that I think is so important that I actually, I really checked with her to make sure that it's okay that I use her so heavily in this chapter. Yeah. Um, But just frentimacy, it's, it's acknowledging that romantic partnership isn't the only type of partnership in our lives and that friends are just as important as, if not sometimes more important than romantic partners, because realistically in our lives, Romantic partners come and go a lot of the time Hmm. and friendships can last for decades. And it's really interesting that in our culture, we don't act like friendships are that important because when you, when you zoom out in the media, romance is what's talked about constantly. There's this figure I drop, which I just think is a little silly and interesting that one third of the books in the U S market are romance books. Out of all the books and all the categories, romance is a third of it. And if you think about, okay, what's in music, what's in movies, it's it's an obsession with romance. That's, there's a scholar who calls it a motto normativity, huh. meaning that there's an assumption that a romantic relationship is better than other relationships and that it should be the focus of our attention. Hmm. And considering what we're taught, that's what is the focus of our attention. Yeah, from a very young age, mm-hmm. definitely. In addition to talk, mm-hmm. you talk about touch, mm-hmm. and I, which I thought was so interesting. Oh, my God. Because this is, I think, one of those things, just like we were saying, where we try and pretend that there's not a need mm-hmm. or that it's not some, it's kind of taboo or, you know. So t- talk about platonic touch and, and why it's so important to us and, and how we can find it. Well, the number one thing I would say is just communication. Mm-hmm. That there is, like, I feel like the key or the core theme of this book is shame. That there's this shame where I'm like, ah, I feel like I want to be touched more and I don't want to bring it up. But just to say, especially if you already have close friends, say, hey, you know, 
I'm realizing I don't get a lot of touch in my life. Like, how do you feel about the touch in your life? Are you comfortable with hugs? Are you comfortable with me putting my head on your shoulder? And just, of course, if they say, I'm not a touchy person, then you're not going to have that conversation. Yeah, move on. But I know for me, when I started saying to people, hey, are you okay with like a 10 second hug or a 20 second hug? And if their reaction was like, oh my God, hell yes. Like, thank you for asking. Then that opens up this conversation of like, oh, are you comfortable with me? Like putting my head on your shoulder, just stuff like that. And it makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. It's... Well, it's frenemacy. Yeah. You're creating the frenemacy here. Totally. Like I was at an authentic relating immersion this weekend which it's kind of like using conversation as a form of meditation Mm. to be really in the present moment with someone. And the goal is to really understand somebody else's world. Mm -hmm. And that community touches such a big part of it because I notice in the communities where people really care about connection touches a part of it. Uh, Like there was a moment at the end of the weekend where I was just sitting in front of someone and we were giving reflections on what had happened over the course of the weekend and he just went, hey, could I play with your hair while we have this conversation? I was like, yes, thank you for asking. And he got so much pleasure out of it because he could tell that I was just really relaxing and was really enjoying receiving it. And it wasn't sexual. He's a man with a wife. It was just this beautiful, connected thing. Mm-hmm. And it, I think there's so much fear, especially for men, around touch and being perceived as creepy or for anyone being perceived as desperate and i think we're just at this tipping point of like all right we need to acknowledge this is a real human need uh and there's one point in the book that i mentioned that when you receive touch you have a better relationship to your body Mm -hmm. which for me personally so when i was the ages like 16 to 21 i was anorexic and I didn't get a lot of touch in that time in my life. And I think that really exacerbated it. And also at that time in my life, I was obsessed, obsessed with getting a boyfriend. Mm. And so it was this weird mix of all of these things of like, I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't have the closeness in my friendships that I want. And so I guess I just took it out on myself and made it mean, okay, since I'm not enough, I guess I'll just be thinner and that's the solution and then that way i'll get a romantic partner and all of my needs will be met and i will be fine yeah the the yeah. logic of a teenager mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. didn't work didn't work. also plenty of adult women also have this exact logic uh, i mean yeah I, th- I think that's so interesting plenty of people tend to have strange strange logical conundrums i don't, I don't know the right word but mm-hmm. but we you we we try and we we use our logical brain to justify things that don't make sense totally all the time mm-hmm. and but uh, so i'm not it's it's so interesting to me when that happens like when we tr- when we maybe it's that we we want there's an outcome that we want and then we reverse kind of logicify it in order to figure out then how we can make it make it happen mm-hmm. and and a lot Just of that is for case. romantic relationships. Like yes. all these crazy making things that we do to say like, oh, if I'm in a romantic relationship, all of these needs will be met. And a thing that I say in the book is, what if we took a third of the time that we spend obsessing about getting a partner or for a lot of people just having some casual sex and deepening our friendships? Yeah, right. The I- most connected I feel like I have some lovers in my life right now and I will own that the most connected I feel is with my close friends. Yeah, totally. And yeah. and I'll say that you, I think there was a moment in the book when you talked about doing a Skype chat or some kind of video chat with, with five friends or something mm-hmm. together and having a conversation mm-hmm. with them. And that was actually inspiring. I decided I, I've got a couple of friends that I've been keeping in touch with, but it's all been like just one-on-one and one-on-one and mm-hmm. one-on-one. And I'm like, guys, what if we all just got together, chatted all together and we actually did it earlier today for the first time. <gasps> no. And it went really well. Oh, and my I'm God. Like, Yay. So, I feel really touched hearing yeah. you say that. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Um, okay, but you, and you also further excited me mm-hmm. by... So this, much excitement. So much excitement um, by this idea of, like, retreat and camps. You well, are a huge fan. I mean, you were just on one this weekend. <laughs> you are a huge, huge fan of retreats and camps. I am addicted, arguably, yeah. to retreats and camps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So... Talk about some of those mm-hmm. and why 
They are so addicting, life-changing. And one of the, my favorite lines, and maybe even in the book, was when at one point, you, the, I don't know if you said it or someone else said it, but it's like, why can't real life be like this? Yes. Why, why, are, why are we going back to something less than this and mm-hmm. have to go retreat to this? Mm-hmm. So talk about all of that. Talk about retreats and camps. Yeah. So at least for me in my life, I've noticed in my friend group, suddenly it's like people don't go on vacations. They go on retreats. Mm. Uh, that could be my specific world of friends. But it seems like retreats are becoming more and more popular. And I really think, and I actually got more clarity on this after I finished the book, mm-hmm. is that because we don't have these religious experiences anymore, but we still want experiences that connect us to meaning and deeply connect us to other people, retreats are a great way to do that. And they have a lot of elements of something that could be religious, so like a consistent movement practice, Mm -hmm. potentially meditation practice, constantly coming together for meals, having these facilitated conversations around meaning and connecting with people and group singing and music and being around a fire. All of these things that mm, I feel like so passionate about this right now, just these things that we, we need in our lives and can be so disconnected from in our daily life. And a thing I talk about a lot is creating an alternate universe or creating the space that you want to see in the world, creating the reality that you want to be in. And so the people who create these retreats and these camps, they're literally creating a space that is a representation of how they want the world to be. Yep. And of course it's much easier to go into one of those experiences and to be like, wow, this is how the world could be than to try and figure out some giant systemic way to change the way everyone lives. Uh, An example is Camp Grounded, a camp that I talk a lot about in the book, and it's this digital detox summer camp for adults. And even just something as simple as people going to this camp, and even if everything else wasn't as magical as it was, just taking away people's phones for a weekend and taking away substances for a weekend and having all of these people see, wow, we can still connect with each other and we can actually still have an amazing time and then bringing those people back into their regular lives and then saying like, actually, do I want to have my phone in my bedroom before I go to bed? Do I want to have these drinks with my friends? Do I need to? I just had this experience where that wasn't the case, maybe for the first time in decades. Yeah. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah. That, that realization, <laughs> I think what you're talking about is that realization that we don't need our phones or we don't need drinks Mm -hmm. in order to disconnect from the scariness of the outside world or the inability to connect with our friends doesn't need to be met by a, you know, series of random emojis. I think this is one of those things that, that if you look hard enough are probably in or nearby a lot of major cities. Oh, yes. One of my goals, I'm like, I have so many things I want to do around this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One is, I am doing this because I'm going to talk about it at a conference, is creating a resource for companies of retreats and experiences that their employees can use their personal development budget for. Mm. Because a lot of companies have personal development budgets that they allocate to their employees. And a lot of that money goes unused mostly because the employees have no idea where to spend it. Yeah. Or they they might think like, okay, there's Landmark, which is a personal development thing, but I don't want to do that. So what else is available? And to yeah. say, hey, here's this list of amazing experiences that people can drop into. Some of them edgier than others. And I'm just really excited by the potential. One thing that I, that I, you know, this the whole idea of camp retreats, and then you, you talk about later in the book, which was really useful to me, was the idea of sort of your the demographics of your friends. Yeah. And you, you get into this and, and you make, I think one of the key points about our, our demographic shift today, which is, which is really interesting to me. It's like we live in this, we're in New York city in this incredibly diverse city, but the diversity of our friends groups is mm-hmm. actually decreasing mm-hmm. over the years. And you've got some great statistics there. So, and I, and I think we can just, you know, anecdotally, everyone can kind of see this happening. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about what happened when you realized that and what Mm -hmm. you did to try and 
change it up and why you feel it's so important to have a, a more diverse group of friends across all sorts of different domains? Yeah, I think it was around New Year's when I realized this, that when I zoomed out and looked at my friend group, that it was kind of like 20s to 30s white people who listened to a mix of Tim Ferriss on being and Super Soul Sunday. Like, those are my friends. Yeah. And I love those people. I'm one of those people. Uh, and I value being able to see the world from a broader lens and to understand problems from multiple angles. And that if my friend group is exactly the same as me and has the exact same viewpoints as I do, I'm never going to be able to see the world in a different way. And that's arguably dangerous because that's how it's very easy to see people as other. Right. And whatever my view is, is the right view because it's never questioned. And I'm in this bubble to use the word that people use constantly. Uh, and so I kind of made this promise to myself of I'm going to diversify my friend group. And the way I did that was just by going to spaces filled with people who aren't like me. And it, so that's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Um, or actually, no, I won't say that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It can just be exciting. Okay. A I know this is a thing that Brene Brown says. I get pissed when people say this to me sometimes. So take it if you want. I'll but take just it. that like being nervous is pretty much the same feeling as excitement in our brain. You just have to tell yourself that it's a different feeling. Like in our body, nervous and excited feel pretty much exactly the same. You're just like, okay, well, why am I nervous? Because this thing really matters to me and because it has the potential yeah. to blah, blah, blah. So you know what? I'm also excited. Um, it's two sides of the same coin. It's two sides of the same coin. Uh, so an example of a thing that I did was I went to a conference for pastors because, one, I'm obsessed with community building who does community building better than the church? They're pretty good at spreading their message and getting people yeah, to join yeah. in. Been around for a while. They've been around. And this conference is called Exponential, and they have conferences all over the world. Um, and I went with four of my friends. We were the only people in a room of a 1,000 people, I think, who were not pastors. Uh, especially, we none of us were religious actually at all. Um but we got so much from this conference. One of my favorite moments was at the end of the conference. Uh, they talk a lot about servant leadership and essentially your job as a leader is to reveal the gifts of other people to themselves or to mm -hmm. remind people of the gifts that they have. And at the end, they had a bunch of pastors standing up at the front of this church. And they said, if you during the course of this week had any realizations about yourself, things that you feel called to do, things that you feel scared to do and you want a blessing, come up and you can be blessed. And like people started going up and I was all nervous because I was like, well, I my thing doesn't have to do with church at all. Yeah. But I would love a blessing. So I went up and then this man, he was just like, so like, what do you want to be blessed for? Thinking I was about to say that like, I'm going to go create my own church, which is the goal of this conference is to get yeah. people inspired to create a church. Um, I said, I run this newsletter and it's called the joy list. And my, our mission is to make the world less lonely. And I want to create a team and I want to grow it and I don't know how to do it. And it's, I'm scared and it's bigger than me by a lot. And I would love a blessing. And I was so afraid for some reason that he was going to say, like, are you kidding? Get out of this line. This is not for you. And instead, he got so excited. He was like, an unconventional blessing. I love it. This Yay. is my favorite. And he gave me this whole talk about how, like, he just improvised the shit out of it. It was so mm -hmm. great. I forget exactly what he said, but, like, he's like, this is a woman. She's going to take down the patriarchy. She's going to be an amazing leader. He just added the take down the patriarchy yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> No he's like, You're, this is probably something you're also thinking about. Yeah, he's like, also that. Um, but whatever he said, it really did help me. And I actually was like, wow, this isn't about me anyways. This is about me helping other people. The pressure's not on me. This is about love and a higher power and just like trusting that I'm going to have support and things will work out. 
And I actually cried. Wow. This guy, because the whole time he had his hands on me and he was praying for me. And there are all these people behind me and they're like singing this hymn. And I was just like, what if we could have this experience for things that are not religious? Like, what would it be like if for community organizers we had this? For people who are political organizers if we did something like this? Because it was just like, wow. Yeah. I'm getting chills thinking about it now, how powerful that moment felt. Yeah, like the connections being forged mm-hmm. in the room mm-hmm. as well as you with you. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It was really cool. And so to get all of these tools and this different perspective on religion, like I still, of course, was very skeptical of the whole thing because it's like there's <laughs> there's literally a booth for an app where you could track how many people you converted. Oh, boy. Uh, and so I was like, okay, there's this element it's of a it little much. that I do not like at all. But that the core of it is not actually that different than what I'm trying to do, which is to spread love and connection to other people and a reminder that we're not individuals, we're a collective, and to spread that to people. And I was like, whoa, me and these people have a lot more in common than I thought we did. And I think that's a big part of the book is 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 that we shouldn't necessarily shun religion just because it's religion. Totally. It's that there's lots to learn from them mm-hmm. and and grow from what they've already experienced. Yeah. And then we can we can use some of that to also pass along the goodness that we want to. Mm-hmm. So I think that was great. Thank you. Um, so you've you've kind of talked about some of your struggles mm-hmm. across your life and and some of the great moments you've had of of getting through them. So in the book, you specifically dedicate a chapter to what you call healing spaces. Yes. um, To really help you. And you have some just amazing stories of just Mm. getting through all this past trauma. Mm -hmm. So so what are these healing spaces? How can I find one? Why are they so important? Oh my God. This is my favorite chapter of the book, to be honest. Uh, I want to write another book entirely about this. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so important. Um, but to me, a healing space is a place where you have permission to really be vulnerable and to show the parts of yourself that could be shameful or painful and places where we can just be sad and angry and messy and know that we're not being judged. Uh, the perfect example of this, of course, is Al-Anon. Uh, or any group for people who are facing addiction. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why spaces like that are so popular. It's because you share something with people and you know that you can bring your full self and you're not going to be judged. But people, everyone needs that. Not just people who face addiction. Because every person on this planet is walking around with something locked inside them that is heavy and it is weighing them down and they would really benefit from a space to just let it out and there are places like that but they're not super popular they're not super mainstream people don't know where to go or even if they do know where to go it's so intimidating and weird sounding that they never do it yeah there's a stigma mm-hmm. so one of the things that i maybe maybe that might be helpful is to understand here the similarities differences between what you think about as healing spaces mm-hmm. and therapy yeah yeah. Can you can you talk a little about that? Should if people are going to therapy, are they in a healing space? Are they not? Healing spaces in the book to me seemed mm-hmm. much more as a of a group yes. activity and there were there was more facilitation and mm-hmm. particular things each different healing space did. But but tell tell us more about those two things and how they relate to one another. Yeah. So I think that therapy is healing. Mm-hmm. I'm in individual therapy. I love it. Shout out to Deborah. <laughs> uh But I wouldn't consider it a healing space. I would say that it is the group element that really makes it important. Because, for example, I could talk about a sexual assault with my therapist. Uh, There's an example I don't give in the book, but I love the story of a, a woman in this program called Woman Within, who she had been assaulted and women didn't believe her they some women kind of turned their back on her and for her to 
tell this story to a group of women who then got to say to her, we believe you was really powerful for her Mm -hmm. Uh, or to use myself for me to talk about my relationship to my dad in front of a group of people and to be able to share things with these women in a way where I wasn't being judged and I wasn't being called ungrateful or any of the things that I was afraid of being told and to just be accepted. To me, it's far more powerful to be able to say that to a whole group of people who were all there than to just say it to one trained therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the, and and I think a lot of what we've been talking about here in different ways is the idea of ritual. Mm -hmm. And you're a huge fan of ritual. Love ritual. Huge fan. Shout out to ritual. Shout out to ritual. (laughs) And, and, and the book talks of, I mean, it's interesting because you, you kind of drop little ritual hints throughout the book, Mm -hmm. but it's always like, Hey, and we'll talk about this later. Like Mm -hmm. get ready. And then you raise yourself. Yeah, raise yourself ritual. And then you get to this chapter, and you, and it's just the this huge chapter that talks about, mm-hmm. like you said, and the, the joy list includes things that have that element. There's facilitation. There's mm-hmm. specific stages to the event. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about ritual. Why is ritual so important? And when when people are thinking about going to something, yeah, going to an event. How can they try and differentiate? What are the types of things they can look for that in an event that's going to have a useful ritual, a good facilitation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, one, when you read an event description, you can typically tell how much thought is being put into this event. I would say rule of thumb is that typically just like a quote-unquote networking event will not be a good space for this. There's, there are exceptions to this, like anything, but most networking events, it's kind of like you just show up and there's a bar and you talk to people and that's about it. Uh, a lot of singles events weirdly to me are also like that, where it's just like you show up and you know that this group of people has something in common and just let, they just let you loose into this giant room of humans. Um, concerts, are also typically not really facilitated experiences. Again, I don't understand how that is possible. Um, but that if you read in a, an event description, yeah, that if, if they're talking about like, why, what do you get from this event? Why are you benefiting? Like a pet peeve of mine is if you see like an art gallery or a book talk or a movie screening, if they're just talking about why the person who's hosting this is great, and how why their work is amazing my judgment is it's not going to be a good event Mm -hmm. because they're not thinking about the people who are showing up so for example (laughs) to use myself as an example i'm having a book launch party at the open center in new york city and i will i think i'll maybe be doing a book reading for like five minutes but the intention of the event is to create community so i'm going to have 20 tickets for people in their 20s and 30s, 20 tickets for people in their 40s and 50s, 20 tickets for people in their 60s and 70s. That's great. And it's going to be an intergenerational conversation event because the point of my book is about creating community. And it makes zero sense for me to just have a book talk event where I'm talking at people. Yet for some reason, so many events, it's like, oh, this project is about, I don't know, like racial inequality but we're just going to show you this documentary and then do a panel where none of you talk to each other and then we're going to leave. Yeah. And then maybe, or, or maybe have, you know, a couple minutes of questions at the end or something. Yeah. It's like, what if we got everyone to turn to each other? Because people show up to events to meet other people. I don't care what your event is. I don't care how awesome it is. Like, yeah, maybe you're going to see your favorite artist because you love that favorite artist. But also there's a part of you that's really excited to meet the other people who are a fan of this artist. And the fact that there's no moment, be like, hey, turn to this person. Ask them what their favorite part of their week was. It's such a wasted opportunity. Yeah. It drives me crazy. At a higher level, talk about yeah. what what rituals are, mm-hmm. how people can incorporate them into what they do, whether their lives, whether yeah. events, anything like that. I think to me, a ritual is really just something simple that signifies this moment is important. It could be as simple as for me, like when I start my meditation practice, 
I light a candle and it's just saying, this is a specific chunk of time that is special and different than other chunks of time in my day. And I end the meditation practice by blowing out the candle. Super simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, At an event, it could be when people come in, they're given a piece of chocolate every time and they're given a hug if they want it. And if that, if that's a thing that happens every time, one is it, it's not just saying this is a special moment. It's also something that people can look forward to. And an extra bonus of that is that if you know what's going to happen and you get to say to your friends like, Hey, just so you know, when we go to this event, uh, you're going to get a piece of chocolate and they're going to ask you for a hug. You get to feel like you're part of a community. You know, what's happening. You get to tell people what to expect. And there's just a sense of like, familiarity Mm -hmm. and there's so few spaces in our life where we get that and for me my favorite type of ritual is a ritual that connects us to each other in the book I talk about being at a Jewish service and that they have these beautiful rituals for grief and how sad I felt thinking about in my own life not being a religious person I don't really have anything to turn to to make meaning out of this time and I think at its best, that's what ritual does, is that in these moments where we're at a total loss for what to do, we have something to do. Mm. And that there's really this need for people who are not religious to have things like that because it's just, it's a way to show us that our lives are something that are worth being intentional with and thinking about. Yeah. 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 I mean, here, here. <laughs> and and it, you're like I totally disagree. Like, yeah, no, no, no. I who can disagree with that? Mm. And then at the end of the book, you you wrap it all up by I mean, so I feel like the whole book is really this journey where you're guiding someone and you're trying to help someone mm-hmm. that is feeling lonely, disconnected from yeah. the world, and bringing them to a place of connection, whether it's touch or verbal or you know making new friends. And at the end of the book, you kind of you kind of you, you give people a charge. You say, okay, this is your time now. You, mm-hmm. can, you can actually, now that you've read the book, you've been equipped with the tools mm-hmm. to rise up and create your own moments and gatherings mm-hmm. and events yeah. where people can now do this on their own and, can, mm-hmm. you know, can, and this can kind of continue going. So w- w- how, talk about how you wrapped the book up. What are some of those things people can do once they've been converted Mm. And you can count them on the app. <laughs> Once I've converted them, <laughs> like evil yeah. villain fingers. Yeah. What can they do? What can, mm. how, you know, what, what, like someone anywhere listening to this all over the, the world right now. Yeah. What can they do tomorrow to start an event, to start some gathering, to bring people together? Yeah. The simplest thing is just to think about what is a space that I wish existed in my town that doesn't exist Uh, An example that I give is when I moved to New York City, I wanted to be a freelance writer. I didn't know how to make that happen. I didn't know anyone who was a freelancer. I started to meet freelancers, and I couldn't find a space to learn the skills to actually be successful in that business. And so first I started my own workshops, and then I started a conference. And that's a really big example. Yeah. But it's just saying... I couldn't find a group of people who were gathering that I wanted to be around. And so I just invited them to a space. So for someone that could be as simple as, okay, I live in Austin, Texas. I can't find a group of people who are writers who want to get together for two hours a week just to write with each other or to read our projects out loud. So I'm going to hang out in the back room of this cafe and invite people. Guarantee you some people will show up. Because if you have that need, other people have that need. Right. And if you can just say, you know what? I'm going to sit in this back room of this cafe. I'm going to do it twice a month for six months. And just commit. I bet at the end of that six months, you're going to have people who've been there multiple times. You're going to create connection. You're going to be known more as a writer in your town. You're going to be... The head of the cafe is going to love you. They're going to invite you to something. People in this cafe are going to know you. And it's unfortunate that it does take energy and effort to find a deeper community now. But that's kind of the point of the book is that if you're not 
a religious person, we it's up to us to kind of patchwork together this quilt of community mm. and that it feels vulnerable to be someone who creates an event, but it's necessary. Uh, and also if you don't want to create something that's like, okay, it's a specific group for a specific type of person to just let your friends know that you want to commit to seeing them more because this feels vulnerable too. Yeah. Is to just say, Hey, do the three of us want to get together for dinner once a month or ideally like every week? Yeah. What if we did that? People want to be invited. When you invite people and they can't make it, it's not a reflection on you. And that even if they can't show up, it still feels really nice to be invited to something. Mm -hmm. Like, I love it when people invite me to things. And it's like, yeah, most of the time I can't go, but I feel thought of. And it's a reminder that you care about me. And it's a way to keep that connection going. And so for people who maybe might feel afraid of being rejected or think that if someone says no, it means they don't like you. That's not the case. Yeah. Uh, and that's also an invitation to think about the kind of like the healing work that needs to happen with a lot of us around our fears of being rejected. And like, why is it that we don't reach out to people? Like yeah. that there's something deeper going on there. Yeah. Like you said in the book, it's that, Oh, I'm throwing a party and no one's here yet. Mm -hmm. Is anyone coming? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, to wrap it up a bit, yes, we've talked about so much and covered so much today. <laughs> we have today. been on a journey. We have been on an epic journey, and it's been wonderful. Was there anything else in the book, any other messages, mm. any other ideas you think are important that people should know about? The core thing in this book is just that if you are lonely, you are not alone. Mm. And that actually people who feel lonely are in the majority that the average American hasn't made a new friend in five years. 75% of people are not satisfied with their friendships. The average American has one friend. So if you're feeling lonely and you're listening to this, you're not alone. And to remember that when you're thinking about inviting people to something, remember these statistics, the chances are three out of the four people you're thinking of inviting they're not happy with their friendships right now. They want deeper connection. They want to be invited to things and that you could be the person who makes that happen. How wonderful would that be? How wonderful would that be? That would be so great. Okay. So let's do a quick thunder round, getting great. to know you Ooh. and then we'll call it a day. Okay. You're going to, you're going to change here. No, no, no. I don't want you to know no, what you're these like, questions no, don't look. are. Okay. This will be better. Great. So yeah, I don't what is, remember what these questions what, are. Good. What is your favorite food or drink? Ooh, no, 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 no. Favorite food. Right now, probably dark chocolate with almonds and sea salt. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Drink? Favorite drink. I've been really liking getting hot chocolate. Where's your favorite place you've ever been? Oh, favorite place I've ever been. Or one of them. One of my favorite places. Can an experience be a place? Sure. Yeah, so recently I went to this thing called ISTA, Ooh. Uh, which is the Institute of Sacred Temple Arts. Okay. And it is, it's a retreat around like sacred sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I'm just such a sucker for things that take people to the edge of human experience. And I was like, wow, this really brought me there. So I will shout that out. Okay, great. If you're curious, Google it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? Fuck. Okay. Mm, if I could change any one thing, I think it would be, I would have a totally free community center in every town in America that had a lot of these group healing experiences that I talk about mm -hmm. and it's just funded by the government and it's free to everyone. And there's like a space for people to hang out. There's a coffee shop, there's a co-working space, and it's just there. Yeah. Like how much of a difference would that make? It would make a lot. I will make a pitch for our local libraries mm -hmm. as sometimes being that, but I think what you're talking about is much more. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a, a call to expand the role of our libraries. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. That mm, I'm like, this is closer than I think. What if libraries did these things? What if libraries did them? 
Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of groups that meet in libraries. Mm-hmm. There's meeting rooms. Um, I know that, you know, like bridge clubs will meet in libraries, book mm-hmm. clubs will meet in libraries. I was at the library today. They had like a resume writing workshop. There's computers you can use. There's free Wi-Fi. There's free books, yeah. obviously. So there's some of that there. They're definitely, you know, they they could use more money probably. It's funny that I didn't even think about libraries when I was writing this book at all. Like not once. Yeah. Hmm. I'm I'm uh, as an obsessed book reader and library goer. So I uh, every go, growing up, basically every Saturday with my dad, he would take all four of us and we would go to the library. Oh. That was like number one. We would always go. It was like this tiny library in a strip mall, and there was no one there. And the librarian would read to us, and it was like this what? whole like started my magical experience and love with books. So oh, I always sweetest. I always have libraries in the back of my head as as Damn. something to do. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> on on that library note, um, like support your local library, folks. Support your local library, but you know community center as well. Mm-hmm. We can attach them. Okay, Jillian Richardson, I'm going to read this so that I get it right. Unlonely Planet, How Healthy Congregations Can Change the World. Uh, If you haven't been convinced, read the book. If you have been convinced, read the book. Yeah, if you have been convinced, buy the book and review it on Amazon. That's right. You don't need to give it five stars. You can give it whatever you want, but review it. That'd be awesome. That's right. Tell your friends. I sure will. Jillian, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes.